0: And Barrett, pastor here, at Grace Covenant, and I would also like to welcome you. If you're a guest, we're glad or a visitor, we're glad to have you with us. If you're just joining us, uh, we're a good part of the way through our summer series on the book of Proverbs, called "Becoming Wise." And each week, we're looking the book of Proverbs to um, and, and asking this question: What does this book tell us about what it means for us to be wise people? How does this help us become wise? If you looked at the verses that are uh, printed in your bulletin and the title this morning, if you're, uh, maybe if you're a, a visitor, maybe somebody that maybe hasn't gone to church much in the past, and, and for whatever reason you came to a church today and you're thinking, I knew it. They're talking about money. There's something in us that we read this when we, when we talk about what, is, what does the book of Proverbs say about being wise with our wealth, and, and maybe it's already making you nervous. Okay, because you think, um, you know, my experiences in the past. I, I hear sermons about about money, and it just makes me feel guilty. Or I hear about money, and there's this sort of uncomfortable conviction. Or, well, who who knows what we come with this morning? That is what we're going to be talking about. But I hope your fears aren't going to be realized as we look this morning to see what does Scripture tell us about our wealth. So let's pray, and then we're going to read these verses from Proverbs. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning um, to talk about a topic that you speak about very often throughout the pages of Scripture. Um, You talk to us about our wealth, our money, our possessions. So, Father, I pray that you would just help us to listen this morning. Some of us come this morning when we think about our finances, and it it makes us very nervous because we feel very uncertain in our finances. For some people, um, maybe we don't want to be pushed too hard in this area some of us um, you, you've blessed us enormously financially and it has not been a place of worry in our lives Where, wherever we're coming from this morning we pray father that you would open up your word to us and that you would teach us about what it means to become wise as we look at our wealth so we ask this in Jesus' name amen okay you'll find uh these verses printed right after the order of worship in your bulletin there are a, a couple omissions up so if you got to a pencil, a couple things to write in. I, I left these out. We're gonna, there are a couple verses we're going to look at that are not on your list. We're going to look at chapter 10, verse 22. So, again, if you're taking notes and want to write that down, chapter 10, verse 22, uh, also chapter 14, verse 24. And then if you look down at chapter 22, verse 15, and you, you see this verse that seems a little out of place. It's about children. Maybe you're thinking that. Well, that sort of makes sense. Children are really expensive. and you know, that's, that, that, that's a misprint. It should be chapter 22, verse 16. So I'll, I'll, I'll read the correct verses as, as we go through. And again, if you're using one of our Pew Bibles, these verses from chapter 10 start on page 534 of the Pew Bible. But I'm going to read straight through. So let, let's listen to what Proverbs says to us about wealth. 1015. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. A gracious woman gets honor, and violent men get riches. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. 1424, The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall is in his imagination. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. What is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. The rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. 22.16 Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. And whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. <clears throat> okay, now we said, like, as soon as we start talking about money and wealth, this can bring up a host of reactions for all of us, maybe different reactions. Uh, personally... I hate talking about money. I can't stand talking about money. Um, it, it's not that I'm somehow above it; it is that it makes me incredibly anxious every time I think about uh, financial things. Some of you are, are, are very gifted financially, and, and it just makes me nervous. When I was a campus minister with RUF, about once a month, we'd have to, um, I'd, I'd have to reconcile my expense account. And it it, it was more complicated than you might imagine, because not only, you didn't just simply turn in your receipts and and have them reimburse you. There was a set amount of money that was given to you for expenses, and you saved your receipts over the course of the month, and then you accounted for them. At the end of the month, what you spent added up, you know, subtracted from that total amount that you had, like all the numbers had to, to line up. Now, granted, that doesn't sound very complicated. But every month for me, it was this two or three hour ordeal of trying to make the numbers line up. And, and as, I was, as I'd be putting them all into this report, I'd be thinking, are they, are they going to add up at, at, the, at the end of this? And some months, it would. And you'd hear this shout of hallelujah echoing from my office on Prince George Street because, like, everything lined up. Now, if some of you were looking at me like, how, how else would it turn out? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> there are other times. <laughs> When I, for the next two hours, I'd be on this like this this hunt to figure out what I did with that other twenty dollars. Like, where in the world did that go? And so it would just become this half day ordeal for me that I just dreaded every month. Again, some of you that's not your issue with finances. Let's just keep it at saying this. The Elizabeth keeps track of finances in our family uh, because I'm terrible at it. But here's the thing, whether you are a financial whiz or whether it's something that you um, you get very anxious about, whether you think finances are something you've been incredibly blessed with or something that you really struggle with, the book of Proverbs has something to say to us about what it means to live wisely in the area of our finances. So here's the point this morning. If we're going to be wise people, people who live skillfully and well in God's world, then we're going to have to think about and we're going to have to use our wealth wisely. Okay, now Proverbs, we're going to see here, brings out three things about wisdom and wealth for us. We're going to see that the wise understand that wealth is a gift. And the wise understand the danger of wealth. And the wise use their wealth in the light of the freedom that the gospel brings. Okay, the gift of wealth, the danger of wealth, and the gospel freedom in our wealth. First, the gift of wealth. Let let me just say at the start, when when I see the word wealth, a good number of us think, well, that doesn't apply to me. (laughs) Because when I think of adjectives that describe my financial situation, wealth is not really the one that's up at the top of the list. Well, you know, in a biblical view of of wealth in an agricultural society, you know, wealth had much more to do with having um, a secure farm, having farm animals that were going to support you, having children that were going to be able to support you in your old age. It was not this huge bank account, but it was a sense of regular food and the basic necessities of life. And the truth is that God calls us, whatever our financial situation might be, to be faithful in what he's given us. If you have two pennies to rub together, you have wealth, you have financial means that have been given to you to be a steward of, to make good use of. So whether you consider yourself wealthy or not, the issue of wealth applies to all of us. Okay, wealth, look at, I'm going to read three of these proverbs from your sheet here. First, 10.22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich. 14.24, the crown of the wise is their wealth. And 15.6, in the house of the righteous there is much Treasure. Okay, the, the sages of Proverbs, the wise ones of Proverbs, they know that wealth is a gift. And throughout the book of Proverbs, wealth is treated in a really positive uh, manner. The wealth is a good thing. I mean, they say that wealth is a gift from God. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. Wise people know that if, if, if wealth is a gift, that it comes from the hand of a giver. That there's more to be said in their acquisition of wealth than their own effort, in their own wisdom in making good use of opportunities, their own diligence. At the end of the day, that it's God who gives wealth to people, just like he gives all his good gifts. And the wise recognize that. It says wealth crowns the wise. Wealth, in this sense, is um, a sign of accomplishment, of reward, of Status of someone who is wise. And then 15.6, wealth comes to the righteous. Okay, There's a moral aspect to this. God is superintending his world, and he says that in the house of the righteous there's much treasure. One other thing wealth can bring, it brings a measure of protection in our life. Chapter 10, verse 15, a rich man's wealth is his strong city, and the poverty of the poor is their ruin. One of the commentators on this verse uh, used an example that I, I lived through recently, and he said, you know, let's say, um, let, let's say there's a leaky pipe in your house, okay? And l- assuming you have no plumbing skills, uh, if, if you have a measure of wealth, if you have some room in your budget, if you have some means, then you're going to be able to call a plumber who's going to be able to come and, and fix that leaky pipe. And that happened to us the other day. Somebody, a workman was in our house, noticed a leaky pipe. We had to call a plumber to come fix it. Nobody likes to spend $80 to have somebody fix a leaky pipe that you can't even see underneath your house. But if you're a homeowner, you recognize this kind of stuff happens and sometimes you just have to pay the $80 and get it fixed. But what if you're somebody who has a house and you don't have that margin and you literally don't have it in your budget and you've got a leaky pipe underneath your house and, and no real means to fix it? Then what becomes a minor irritation for you if you have a way to fix it becomes potentially a home-threatening disaster for you. The writer of Proverbs recognizes this. He says that that wealth does a lot to protect us from some of the harms that come to us in life. Okay, now, what you do with what we've just read makes all the difference. The righteous, God gives wealth to the righteous. Wealth is a gift from God. Maybe you look at yourself and you think, uh, well, I, I, I I don't see the money pouring in. I, I don't see the wealth. Does that mean does that mean I've somehow been disobedient? Does that mean God is somehow frowning on me? When I turn on the TV and hear some of the things that are said there, I mean, is it is it I just don't have enough faith and God won't really bless me? Or maybe we turn it towards somebody else. Look at the situation they've gotten themselves into. God must be displeased with them. Proverbs can break you if you use them wrongly writer of Proverbs, what he's giving us, he's giving us descriptions of the way the world works, all things being equal. Okay, Wise people are people who recognize their God, who serve them, who are generous, who are diligent. And people who are diligent and who pay attention to their God tend, tend to do pretty well. They tend to use their money well. They tend to acquire it. They tend to be skillful in the things that they do. But it's not... A promise, as if you could look at this and say, if I am simply righteous enough, if I simply trust God enough, then wealth is just going to somehow just sort of flow into my life. Because the writers of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job, if you look at other parts of wisdom literature throughout, you see the other side of the story. You see these same wise people saying, you know, I look around me and I see that oftentimes the wicked are very rich and those who are upright suffer. Why is this? doesn't seem like it's the way it ought to be. Or you see what are called better than proverbs. There are a couple in the list that I gave you. 19.22 says that it's better to be a poor man than a liar. Okay, what lies behind that? There are situations in your life that come your way where a little lie here, a little lie there could do a lot to advance your financial situation. What does he say? It's better to be poor than to be a liar. 16.8 Better a little with righteousness than great revenue with injustice. Sometimes injustice really pays off in the short term. And what does the writer of Proverbs say? Better not to have that kind of wealth than to follow a path that gives it to you that way. But there's a recognition even in Proverbs that the world is not so simple. That sometimes things happen that we don't understand. And sometimes God in his providence does things that we don't understand and it doesn't pay off. We don't see financial reward. We don't see wealth like we'd, want, like we'd like to. Long digression, but simply to say the starting point for the book of Proverbs, though, is that wealth the wealth is a good thing, that riches really do come from God. Okay, but the second thing we see uh, throughout the book of Proverbs, we see the danger of wealth. Okay, what is the danger of wealth? It's basically this, that wealth can become our functional savior. What does that mean? Wealth can become the thing that provides us our security. Wealth can so easily become the thing that we look to to rescue us, to save us, that we rely on. 11.7 says, When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. Somebody has put their hope in their wealth, and they die, their wealth passes away too. 11.28, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. 18.11, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. That we can so easily picture our wealth, our achievement, or our financial resources is the thing at the end of the day that's going to save us. Why is it so easy to make something other than Jesus, something like money, the thing we really put our hope in? It's tangible. You can see on your bank account when it sends the form to you, you, you can you can see the tally. You can see the amount. You can see a, something on paper that looks like this is the measure of the security that I have. Now, of course, we're thinking, I, you know, I'd never do that. I'd... I would never I've never put my hope in money instead of Jesus. I've been to church enough to know that's the wrong answer. I'd never do that. Okay. Um, let me tell you my one story. most many of you have heard this story. Some people just attract great stories like a magnet. I have I have one great story. So if you haven't heard it, you're gonna you're gonna hear it for the first time now in an abbreviated form. Um, the night before I got married. Okay, a few chuckles, you guys know the story, but the night before we get married, uh, some of my friends after a rehearsal and a rehearsal dinner, uh, Took me out for us to spend time together, uh, and w- when we were in college, okay, this is not an endorsement of anything illegal. Okay, I'm just burying my soul. When we were in college, um, we got a hold of um, some rappelling ropes, okay, rock climbing rappelling ropes, and we would we would rappel off various edifices around campus by the light of the moon, uh, from time to time. So. Several years after college, I'm getting married. and Our buddies are together. They take me back to our college, Davidson College. And at the back end of the very distant parking lot of Davidson, there's ROTC. The ROTC program there owned a repelling tower. So, so we got all our gear in the middle of the night we went out to the repelling tower. My best friend, a guy named Georgio, and I <clears throat> were there with these other guys, but we're the first to climb the tower, and we're going to get the rope set, and we're going to get everything ready for everybody. So we climb up there. And as we're up on the top of the, of the tower, I look down at the end of the parking lot, and these, these headlights turn into the parking lot, and someone at a very high rate of speed <laughs> is coming right for us. Georgia and I do what any upstanding young men would do. We, we dove down on the platform and tried to hide. And so my, our worst fears are realized the police car comes up. He shines his light up there, and he says, all right, boys, y'all come on down. So we start climbing down the ladder. Before we even get to the ground, he's already asking us questions. Have you boys been out drinking tonight? And we're like, no, sir. And so, you know, he he says, you know you're trespassing. And then he goes on to say, "Um, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you boys tonight. I'm going to arrest you. (laughs) I'm thinking this is not supposed to go this way. So the next thing I know, I'm spread eagle on the squad car. I'm getting frisked. Puts me in the back of the car, and he starts reading to us our Miranda rights. And he starts telling us about how we have the right to remain silent and the right to an attorney. And in that moment, all I could, the only straw I can clutch is there is this thing called bail. <laughs> I'm supposed to be married tomorrow. <laughs> There's this thing that calls me, I don't know about a honeymoon, but at least I'll be able to go <laughs> to the ceremony. <laughs> He's reading these rights. And then he looks back and he says, and you know, of course, that you have to wait at least 24 hours before you can even post bail. And all the color drains from my face. And I, and I, I sink in the back seat. And as he finishes up the Miranda rights, he says, and you have the right to have a practical joke played on you by your friends. <laughs> and I, I was a man reborn <laughs> in that moment. They had set all this up ahead of time. All that You're not going to remember the sermon now, but all that to say, in that moment, I'm sure I'd love to think that I was praying, but in that moment, the thing that I was clutching to was bail. Somehow, somebody is going to come up with the money, the riches, the wealth to save me out of this situation that I have so clearly gotten myself into. And I clutched at that, and it was knocked out from under my feet. I was saved in that situation, but it was it wasn't by bail. What happens to us when we try to put our hope into the thi- into the into the wealth that God brings into our life to be the thing that rescues us to save us? For some of us, what's it like when two thirds of the way through the month you look at your at your bank account, you get online to see what the total is, and you think to yourself, am, am I going to make it this month or not? Are all the numbers going to line up at the end of the month or not?" If it's starting to look like they're not, the great anxiety that sets in. Or the other side of it, you look and your your bank account looks good that month and you're going to even come out a little bit ahead and you're thinking, I don't have a thing to worry about this month because the money is going to be there. Either way, whether it's your fear or whether it's your sense of security when everything looks fine, you look at your money so easily. I look at my money and I go, okay. This is going to break me or maybe this is going to make me this month. It either has to plunge me in despair or I can rest because my finances are going to save me this month. Or maybe it's not your monthly finances. You know, Maybe it's the, the dividends on your investments, all the things that you're looking at for your retirement sends us either up or down based on what that little report can say to us. But maybe you're thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm just not as crass as that. I mean, I don't look at the totals of my money. That's not the thing that you know, my son rises and sets on. But what about for us just what wealth becomes when it's not money? It's just the stuff. Okay, Maybe it's not the, the idea of the money itself, but the stuff that it buys. What happens inside of you when you go over to somebody's house for dinner and it is just so noticeably bigger and nicer, than yours is. And, and and maybe it doesn't make you jealous, but maybe the next level is, then you think about, eventually I, would I be able to have this person over to my house, or would I not want them to see it, would I not want them to be there? What happens when you're in junior high, and everybody around you has the newest and the coolest cell phone, and you don't even own one? What happens to your status then? What happens to... um? the way your stuff can or isn't rescuing you. Now, as you get older, it's probably not your cell phone, and it's not junior high. Maybe it's the car. Maybe it's the clothes. Maybe it's the home. What is, what is the stuff that makes us feel secure? Elizabeth and I, before we had kids, we went to visit some friends of ours who had three kids at the time. And so we're standing out in the parking lot right in front of their little townhouse, all these houses right next to each other, and all these people other families out playing and so next to us there's this somebody drives up in this minivan and they step out of the minivan and and the person comes out and they start talking and they have this conversation that I just cannot fathom one of them says is that the new Sienna? And the guys like as a matter of fact it is. And so then he proceeds it's like I'm watching an infomercial he proceeds to like open the doors and show them how the you know the chairs flip down and all the cool latest things that his new minivan can do and I'm thinking save me from coming to a place in my life where the sun rises for me based on my minivan. Uh, And then we had children. (laughs) And I look back and I'm like, I know why they're having that conversation. That is the coolest thing. The door opens by itself. But whatever that is for you, the stuff that so easily grabs our hearts, the minivan, the cell phone, whatever it is, the money itself, what are the ways that wealth, money stuff has gotten a hold of your heart? What are you lacking in life right now that you just th- that's making you dissatisfied and you think if I just had that whatever this week's that is. Jesus has a conversation in Mark 10 with the rich young ruler who comes up and asks Jesus what he needs to do to be saved and they have this conversation about the commandments of God and but at the end of this um, he looks at this man and he says, here's what you need to do. You need to go sell everything you own, and then you need to come follow me. And this young man is not able to hear it. He can't handle that, and he walks away sad. And then Jesus says this. Jesus looks around and he says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And part of the reasons they were amazed is because they'd read Proverbs. I thought riches were a sign of God's favor. I mean, if this person has made it, if, they haven't, if, if it's hard for them to get to heaven, what is, what's the hope for the rest of us? But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to hin- enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because it is so easy for us, at whatever level that is for us, to look to our wealth, to be the thing that is going to save us the thing that's going to make life for us. And when our eyes are on that thing, whether that wealth for you is large or small, then it's hard to see any real need for Jesus because there's something else that you're looking at saying, this at the end of the day is going to save me. I found a quote from the uh, 1951 version of the movie A Christmas Carol. I have no idea if it was in Dickens' original or not. But at one point, the spirit of Christmas past looks at Ebenezer Scrooge As they're reviewing his early life, and he says this As your business prospered, Ebenezer Scrooge, a golden idol took possession of your heart. Okay, this does not mean that sometime early in Ebenezer Scrooge's life he went out and bought a small golden statue of Zeus shipped in from Egypt, or shipped in from Greece, and put it in his, you know, his little homemade shrine so that he could worship it. What did happen? As he was more and more successful, more and more he began to look at that financial success as his God, as the thing that he centered his life around, as the thing he put his trust in, the thing that warmed his heart. And as he did, he began to look uh, at his own financial success and attribute it to himself. He looked at the lack of success in others and looked down on them. Began to look at his employees not as people but as cogs in his machine as a way for him to gain greater wealth. A golden idol took possession of his heart. And the same thing happens to us so easily. So one danger of wealth is that we can put our trust in it. But here's the further part of that. We will serve the God that we have. We will serve the thing that has captured our heart. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters. he will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If we're looking to wealth as our savior, as our master, we will serve it and it will control us. Look at some of the things that wealth does even in these Proverbs. 11.16, A gracious woman gets honor and violent men get riches. How much wealth is gained through violence? 16.8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenue with injustice. 16.19, it's better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than divide the spoil with the proud. Better to be poor than be with the rich proud. 19.22, what is desired in in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. 22.16, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. 28.8, whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. In its, its extreme, what does this idol lead us to? Violence, injustice, pride, lying, oppressing. But for us, too, more socially acceptable ways. Maybe it's just the anxiety that grips your heart when you think about your money, whether it's how much you have or how little. Or maybe it's not outright oppression that it drives us to, but the ways the comfortability of our wealth can so clearly, so easily give us a blind eye to the needs of others. I have my own interests that I have to look after. Not outright oppression, but but concerned neglect for others. Of course I feel sorry for them. But it has no real bearing on our life, and we go on to our own, our own pursuits. Okay, great danger that it captures our heart, becomes our God, and that we're going to serve it. Now, last thing, gospel freedom in our wealth. What does Jesus have to say about our wealth? How is following him and knowing him going to have the opportunity to actually change the way we see all this? And I think the answer of Proverbs boils down essentially to this. That the freedom of knowing Jesus' care in your life is going to make you a generous person. Look at some of the Proverbs here. 11.24, one gives freely and grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and he only suffers want. 11.25, whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And one who waters will himself be watered. 19.17, whoever is gracious to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. 28.27, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. What does Proverbs say? Wise people who have been entrusted with wealth know how to use it well and not be controlled by it, are generous people. And our generosity is an indication of of both it 's both an indication of our freedom from this kind of slavery Are we generous people it 's an indication but it 's also a route towards this kind of freedom that the very exercise of generosity does the work of turning our eyes away from the idol and on to god himself who 's got to who 's got to provide for us and it 's lived out in really tangible ways. The only way to know. If you are a generous person it is not by your generous feelings but if you are using the things that come to you generously for the benefit of others. Chapter 3 verse 9 of Proverbs says, "Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce." We spoke about this a few weeks ago. This is not a sermon on tithing, but this does have implications for tithing. The Lord the Lord gives to us and we return a portion of that directly to him. In the Bible, it's a way that God actually gives us freedom from being controlled by these things by forcing our hand in one sense, gently and lovingly, to give it away. But it doesn't just mean that. It's generosity in all areas of our life. Throughout here, in the Proverbs that we've just read and throughout the Scripture, there's this huge emphasis on our care for the poor. It's not simply tithes at church, but in every aspect of your life, are you looking to use what the Lord has brought into your life for the good of those who need it. Now we mentioned being righteous earlier. In in terms of Proverbs, when you read the book of Proverbs and you hear about the person who is righteous, as opposed to the person who is unrighteous or wicked, here's what that means in the book of Proverbs. The righteous are those who disadvantage themselves in order to advantage others. The righteous are those who disadvantage themselves for the good of the community around them. And the unrighteous, the wicked, are those who disadvantage others in order to advantage self. Unrighteous are those who are looking out for themselves and disadvantaging others to cover their own bases. And the righteous look towards others that we are called to be generous in all areas of our life. Okay, but that just leaves the question of how in the world are we actually going to become generous people and some of us are. Some of us are more than others. And I am not by nature. How in the world is Jesus going to come in and make us generous people? The only way we're going to become generous, the only way generosity is going to flow from us is if we know that we follow a generous Savior. Listen to what Second Corinthians 8 verse 9 says. This is the middle of Paul talking to a group of people about raising money for the poor in Jerusalem. And he says this to them, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What's he saying? Look to Jesus, the one who was rich and became poor for you, that you might actually be able to care for the poor, that you might actually be generous, that you might be able to set aside this idol of pursuing our financial stability because we follow a jesus who has set aside his own riches to make us rich in the gospel see the gospel is good news that changes everything about our lives including the way we see our money and changes us in ways that don't make us feel guilty okay now we need to be careful about this because the way the sermon could easily go is think about how much jesus has done for you and you won't even take out your wallet and give this amount for this cause. You won't even care for the poor in your own city. You won't even give to your own church. But the gospel doesn't motivate us that way. Recent weeks, <clears throat> two different people have come to my door looking for money. One was a person who came with a, a, a survey and a community concern, and they were raising money for this community action group to try to bring what they saw as justice in their community, and they wanted, and they were raising money for that. Asking for my money. The other person who came uh, was this young lady who's a university student whose um, whose club sport team is going to Malibu, and she was asking for people to give money so she could go to Malibu. A variety of causes come to your front door, some better than others, perhaps. <laughs> but it was funny, you know, in both those situations, if you say no there's this sense of, like, somebody looks at you like, how could you say no to this? Uh, maybe you remember, I haven't seen these in, in a number of years, but do you remember the Sally Struthers commercials? The, the commercials about, like, the starving children in Africa. Okay. That is a serious concern, and it is a good cause. But every time I saw one of those commercials... I had to either turn off the TV, go into the kitchen to get something to eat, or, or do something because all I felt was this incredible guilt. Here are these pictures. Here's Sally Struthers. She's asking for this. Now, I don't at all mean to mock the cause that that was for. And it's a good example of what it means for us to actually be generous people. But here's the thing about that appeal, at least for me. The only thing it produces was guilt. And that might be a short-term gift, but there wasn't a change of heart that was going to make me actually care about what she was showing me. She cared about it, but I looked at it, and it only made me feel guilty. And Jesus is not the Sally Struthers experience when it comes to this. When he says, look at Jesus, who became poor for you. It's not now, be motivated by guilt. Look what you owe Jesus now. But what is he coming to do, not simply to open our fists with our money, but to give us a whole new heart and a whole new life by which we might now, as people more and more transformed by the gospel, we might see the goodness of God and we might desire different things. Because Sally Struthers, her appeal to me, if it worked, she would have gotten money in the short term, but she didn't change what I valued the most. And Jesus comes to bring us into a whole new kingdom. Jesus comes to say, I am your Savior, not your stuff. And you are going to find life by following me and not by following these things that will perish. I've come to give you life. In another place in John, he says, I've come to give you life that you might have life to the full. He came to give us an entirely different heart. He came to give us a heart that was actually transformed by the generosity that he's shown us, not simply that we would now loosen our tight fists, but that we would actually have generous hearts like his that long to give, that find it a joy to give. So that when we hear this, we would then, in the gospel, not hear guilt motivation, but we'd be able to hear, of course. My life is no longer about the pursuit of these things. I'm no longer looking to these things to finally satisfy the ache of my heart. But I'm following Jesus and his kingdom is about something much bigger than my own personal happiness and my own personal security and my own personal rest. And so when I step into that kingdom freed by the gospel, I can now become a generous person myself because I want the same thing that Jesus wants, his kingdom kingdom to be made manifest. His righteousness and justice and generosity to be seen everywhere around me in society. And that will make us generous people, not because we feel guilty, but because we've experienced the generosity of God himself, and it's made us into somebody entirely different. I was talking to a couple folks in our church this week who used to take um, missions trips with junior high kids to other parts of the world to do service, and one of the things they used to do in their... um, in their training times was they do these ropes, low ropes courses or high ropes courses where you'd have to do all these trust building exercises and one of them the woman was telling me involves standing on a platform, I don't remember how high, 12 feet, let's make it dramatic you know, standing on a platform and what do you have to do? You're blindfolded and you have your hands down at your side and the rest of your team is down below you with their arms out and they're going to catch you. It's called a trust fall and you have to fall backwards, blindfolded trust that your team's going to catch you. And she said, when it's a bunch of junior high kids, she said, I really struggled with that. <laughs> you know, are they going to be up? No, and that's nothing against junior high kids, but I want large football players, you know, uh, NFL guys. But what was she experiencing? I am falling. Are they going to catch me? And in this world, we are all people who are falling. Can we trust the one who's going to catch us? And Proverbs says, if the, if the net at the bottom of the, of the fall that you're trusting in to catch you is your finances, your wealth, the stuff, anything else, you're going to, you're going to fall through. But the good news and the hope of the gospel is that it is Jesus himself who catches us falling people as we fall. And the trust fall for us blindfolded, don't know how this is going to turn out, can't see every aspect of our lives, can't see necessarily what's the next step. We're going to be people who trust the hands of our God to catch us. And if we're, the more and more as we are able to do that, it's going to make us people who are free to be generous. Let's pray. Father, we um, we thank you for your goodness to us that has manifested in so many ways. You consistently give us more than we deserve. You are the one who holds us in our hands. We pray that you give us the gift of not trusting in the things uh, that you bring our way, but trust in you, the giver. Father, where we need to repent, give us freedom this week to repent. Where we need to trust you more fully, open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel, that we might be compelled to trust more fully. And open our hands and open our hearts that we might be generous and by doing...